0: It's going to be by Dr. Dean Freudenberger. Let me tell you a bit about him uh, by way of introduction. So Dr. Freudenberger received his bachelor's degree in agronomy from California State Polytechnic University and a PhD from Boston University in Christian Social Ethics. Dr. C. Dean Freudenberger has been a student of agronomy and ethics throughout his 44-year professional career, both in the areas of practice and reflection. Ordained in the United Methodist Church in 1955, Freudenberger served with the denomination for 17 years in agricultural and rural community development across six continents. How many continents are there? Uh, so you didn't serve in, uh, in Antarctica? Okay. He served as Agricultural Program Secretary for the Board of Global Ministries of the United Methodist Church, and he consulted with the U.S. Peace Corps programs in agricultural developments in West Africa. His years devoted to international agricultural development in Africa, Asia, and Latin America have provided him with global and local perspectives for addressing contemporary issues in agriculture and environmental stability, while his work and teaching in the U.S. at Claremont School of Theology in California and Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, focused on the critical social, environmental, and ethical issues of agriculture domestically and abroad. He's the author of many publications including Global Dust Bowl, Can We Stop the Destruction of the Land Before It's Too Late, Food for Tomorrow. He's co-author of Christian Responsibility in a Hungry World and contributor to the books Rural Ministry and Biblical Holism in Agriculture, Cultivating Our Roots. And just this past April, uh, Dr. Freudenberger received the Responsible Social Engagement Award at Claremont School of Theology for his lifetime of service. And after this uh, Presentation. He'll be taking a break from such presentations. He's been doing, uh, uh, he's been quite active in the past half a year, and we're grateful to have him here. So, would you please join me in welcoming Dr. Freudenberger as he addresses us under the title Regenerative Design for Sustainable Agriculture An Unprecedented Challenge.
1: Oh, there we go. Okay. Well thank you Arnold. I've certainly been honored with the invitation to address you at this 63rd annual gathering of the ASA. It's a remarkable history that you folks uh, represent. I'm also uh, very uh, appreciative of the of the great work that you folks are doing, not only in your own uh, scientific disciplines, but in the common struggle to figure out the interface between modern science and the interface with our faith traditions. Uh, Certainly for this last year I'm grateful for the assistance of Arnold who has been uh, helping me, coaching me in the preparation of this address uh, so that it might be relevant for the uh, entire uh, theme of this year. And uh, parenthetical uh, uh, thought, expressing my gratitude to uh, Ron Sider of the Agricultural Department at Dort College, whom I met 15 years ago and recently I was honored to be a part of his publication on Biblical Holism and Agriculture that was published by the William Carey Library in uh, 19, uh, or 2003. Uh, last night, uh, Larry Schweiger's presentation on global climate change established the uh, context for the way I've been thinking about agriculture in these years, involving a radical change in thinking about our food system. And then this morning, Jennifer Wiseman illustrated profoundly why I think and work the way I do in my field of agriculture, which has provided me the cosmic perspectives which has provided me with an awesome sense of wonder and humbleness. And then yesterday, the presentation on carbon footprints and the sequestering of carbon by the students at uh, Calvin College uh, fortifies me with hope as we look at a pretty uh, challenging crisis these days. Uh, They're illustrations of the leadership that is essential to get us through the next half century. And then this afternoon the parallel uh, seminar on sustainable agriculture and world hunger uh, spelled out a lot of the hands-on activity that is addressing the question of uh, sustainability uh, involving the future of our global food systems. Uh, the question posed by this morning uh, in the uh, uh, meditation by the pastor who was preaching this morning uh, that uh, question of the immigration officer saying, uh, Give me a quote of scripture that's meaningful for you. Uh, force me to think what would I say if I was asked that question. And I think one that recurs in my mind is from uh, Matthew 25, the, the last judgment. When did I see you hungry and thirsty and did not give you water and food? And inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. I think that's the uh, quote that I would have offered that uh, uh, agent. Well, I'm grateful for what has unfolded here during these last two days uh, since it certainly has laid the groundwork for uh, my presentation. I think I worked myself through this in about 35 minutes, so don't uh, go to sleep. It's within the context of our planetary ecological crisis that the concept of sustainability has emerged. I use the uh, Brundtland Commission report of the United Nations issued in 1987. Sustainability is defined as meeting our needs, not our greed, meeting our needs in our time, without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. This concept of sustainability is new in Western moral thought. We have not in our ethics really taken into consideration justice for future generations that we will never see. So the concept of sustainability defined in this way uh, functions as a normative guideline and a normative goal for our thinking. So consequently, the question is raised, how shall we meet our needs for food and fiber on a regenerative and therefore a sustainable basis that guarantees the welfare of future generations? I use the term regenerative and I'll explain it more fully, but uh, to achieve the vision of a sustainable global society, we have to live within the parameters of the regeneration of uh, renewable resources and that's gonna require tremendous change in our science and technology and a tremendous spiritual change that will enable us to live within the parameters of regenerative This is an unprecedented challenge, particularly as prospects of a post-petroleum world are now being confronted. I might also add that it's an unprecedented challenge just for the simple reason that in the United States, we've lost half of our topsoil in 200 years. And when the topsoil is gone, so is civilization. So this challenge is global. It's as much of a challenge in our own domestic life and work as it is globally. The role of the scientist, the physical, biological, social scientist is crucial. What is required is the envisioning of a, and designing of a food system in ways that contribute to the beauty, integrity, and harmony of the biotic community upon which we are totally dependent. Here, I am borrowing the ethic from Aldo Leopold in the Sand County Almanac, which is a burning normative concept for me in the work that I've done over a half a century in agriculture. So how do we move toward an eco-agriculture? How shall human communities function within the parameters of resource regeneration? What will be the impact of a transition from a reductionist frame of reference to an ecological frame of reference that leads toward the acceptance of responsibilities of having dominion? Well, the following is an attempt to unpack this brief. Summary. The brief story. Almost 20 years ago, my wife and I visited our son and his wife and family in Senegal. Mark was completing a research uh, project on the restoration of gum Arabic forests that in historical times stretched from west to east Africa. These forests inhibited the encroachment of the Sahara Desert. Because of our visit uh, that took place during the Christmas season, we had a few days' holiday, and we took time to drive to a distant village beyond Dakar that was in the, that was the home of my daughter-in-law's former Peace Corps uh, language tutor and mentor. The village was entirely Muslim. We were awakened every morning by a call to prayer from the local mosque. One evening, our host and his family, our host was a, a husband of two wives and a father of ten children. Uh, they had seated us within the family compound on the straw mats uh, for the dinner hour, which involved two large dis- dishpan-sized uh, bowls of rice and roasted goat. After the food was consumed, the pans were cleared away and the cooking fire was extinguished. There's no such thing as a little campfire uh, in a deforested region of the Sahel. Darkness fell upon us. We began singing all types of songs, including even several Christmas carols, which the family knew by heart. The smaller children later fell asleep on their parents' laps. And the stars became brilliant as we ran through our musical repertoire. After a while, the conversation drifted, but then seemed to focus on the themes of the human purpose, the wonders of creation, our dependence on the land and all its life, on human roles and responsibilities, and for the care of the land. The village culture was based on how each person, as well as the whole community, contributes to the welfare of everyone and to the future welfare of the land and the community, which involved the regeneration of the health of soil, plants, animals, water resources. On a starlit night, these are the common conversational pieces that people ponder when the stars come out. And there are no distractive televisions, radios, cell phones, or iPods. My wife and I, on that occasion, was once again reminded of what has happened to us as a human species, because of our isolation of modernity and the consequent loss of our allegiance to our biological heritage which has left us unaware of what is happening to us as a species and of all of that upon which all life depends. Our modernity has separated us from reality. Well. A brief background. I'm going to share with you the following synopsis. I was born in 1930, that's 78 years ago, to a Christian family residing in what was then the outskirts of Los Angeles. Our community church provided challenging teaching and preaching. Uh, Inspiring worship and liturgy. My father was a superintendent of a chemical fertilizer plant the days before liquid fertilizers. Because of the labor shortage during the Second World War, I was given a work permit at the age 14 and served as a stevedore during Sundays and school holidays. Unloading trucks of fertilizer in the San Joaquin, Imperial, and Coachella Valleys was a part of my job. Thus, at age 14, my introduction to agriculture in all of its modern industrial forms. From 1948 until 52, I studied, as Arnold pointed out, I studied agriculture at the California State Polytechnic University of San Luis Obispo. And it was on a quiet Saturday night in my dorm room that my youthful orientation to Christian life and service merged with a question of life's purposes and responsibilities, (sighs) questions that usually confront young people during their career-forming years. I experienced a powerful call to ministry And soon after, out of the clear blue, I was challenged by a bishop serving in southern Africa to serve as an agricultural mission worker, addressing the issues of food production and hunger, serving the board of global ministries of the United Methodist Church in the Belgian Congo. It was still a colony in those years. As part of the requirement to serve, I attended Boston University School of Theology for three years, was married, And following graduation, my wife and I did our French language studies in Brussels, Belgium, the metropole of the colonial power. I began service in 1957. That was 51 years ago. And after nine years in the Congo, I completed my doctoral work in Christian social ethics at Boston University, and it was during that coursework and the writing of the dissertation during the 66 to 69 period that I began to work on environmental issues related to agriculture. And that led to the new field of agricultural ethics. Later on, I wrote a book called Food for Tomorrow, asking the question, what is good agriculture? I discovered that there is more to the answer to this question than simply maximizing yields per acre or animal units. We were working in the dark in the middle of the last century on this whole field of food production and international development assistance. From 1969 to 73, I served as a consultant for the United Methodist Church for agriculture and rural community development programs in 22 nations on six continents and several Pacific and Caribbean islands. I also led uh, leadership training programs and program design for the United States Peace Corps programs in sub-Sahelian regions of West Africa following the Sahelian drought in the late 60s. And that involved work in animal traction, school gardens, well digging, community animation. And from 73 until 97, I was professor at the Claremont School of Theology, focusing in the area of social and environmental ethics and then professor of rural studies at Luther Seminary of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Focusing on environmental and agricultural ethics as I was to prepare students for ministry, particularly for rural communities on the northern plains. In those years, and I think still today, 85% of the seminarians come from the city and in the ELCA community, 85% begin their first call in the country and they haven't a clue about what's going on. So my job was to help develop a program which is now fully endowed with a tenure-track professor and a healthy work budget for every year. Helping to broaden my background in this whole field of agriculture and global food systems are the experiences of our two sons. One is finishing almost 20 years of service in both West Africa and Madagascar in eco-agricultural development and wildlife habitat restoration. Well, the other son, who has been, a, is a, a rangeland biologist with the, now serving with the Australian government, uh, and the greening of Australia, he just finished a lecture tour in Western China dealing with the uh, the pitfalls in contemporary industrial agriculture so that hopefully China will not follow the models that we invented here in the Western world. Together over these years of hard work and reflection, this background leads me uh, to these following observations and conclusions. Number one, worldwide human species is now the dominant species. And we know in any, if any species dominates a given ecosystem, the ecosystem will collapse. I've observed over the years, and we talked about this in this afternoon's uh, seminar, that about 85% of food currently produced and consumed worldwide by humans and feed animal comes from 15 to 18 plants involving large-scale monocultural technologies. Modern agriculture is a major contributor to species extinction, soil loss, and pollution from petrochemicals and animal waste. Last year, one of my daughters lives in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we went down to the levees just at the mouth of the uh, Mississippi River, and the massive amount of soil and its pollutants going out into the Gulf of Mexico is heart-rendering. Al Gore, in his book, Earth in the Balance, used a Corps of Army engineer statistics that suggested the equivalent of a 50-car gondola freight train filled with topsoil goes past the mouth of the Mississippi every 20 minutes. I've learned through the years that maximizing biodiversity is essential for planetary health and we know the statistics on species extinction. Deforestation is out of control. Most of our freshwater resources are overdrafted. And we have created a global food system that is almost entirely dependent on the inputs of fossil fuels for cultivating, harvesting, transportation, processing, refrigeration, Fertilizers and pesticides, we've created a worldwide food system dependent on a resource that is rapidly exhausting. And last year in the United States, nitrogen fertilizer went up 300%. Consequently, I've learned that what we are doing is not sustainable. Uh, This is now a historically unprecedented fact. And during my lifetime, which makes yours, that's particularly mine at age 78, going on to 80, which is kind of frightening. Uh, You never know what's going to happen next. Um, I've seen in my lifetime world populations triple. There's nothing in planetary or human historical perspective that has experienced such an explosion. And so this is the kind of a world we're dealing with. Yesterday, one of you folks uh, during a question period said there's a big elephant in the room that we haven't addressed and that is the elephant of population control. We've got to face that and we need the wisdom of every scientist in this room. Uh, I might Point out that I'm not sure we're aware of, but to move toward a ZPG or a zero population growth rate, you have three things to do. You've got to address human culture that has not yet raised the status of women. So it's a, it's a, a men thing in terms of cultural change the second thing is to is to provide adequate public health services so that your babies don't die and thirdly to get out of poverty and those three issues which is a part of the whole thing we're talking about uh is the way we have to we must address the population question which, in my lifetime, has tripled. That helps us recognize we live in a new world of new challenges. So, what about our 21st century challenge? I hope that my story about a starlit night in Senegal and a brief autobiographical sketch leading to some awesome observations and conclusions has provided a context for sharing with you at the request of your planning committee of this year's ASA, how I understand our need to face aggressively the challenge of envisioning and designing ways to create sustainable global society with a sustainable food system. As defined by the United Nations Commission on Environment and Development and earlier stated, but I'll repeat it, a sustainable society meets its needs, not its greed, its needs, without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. This definition is new in Western ethical moral thought. Native Americans lived out this ethic under the title of Seventh Generation Ethic. And when we were serving among two tribal groups in the Southern Congo, the Lunda and the Chokwe people, numbering thousands, we encountered this ethic. Social status is based on how well an individual, the village and the tribe, contributes to the welfare of the present in context of the welfare of generations to follow. Your social status was not based on what you possessed but on your relationship with the present and future. Confronting the challenge of developing a sustainable global society raises the question, what do we do today in the operations of our modern industrial society that is sustainable? And the honest answer is, not much. However, I am cautiously optimistic, I said one reason is because we we saw the presentation of those young people from uh, Calvin College yesterday. During the years of my dissertation research, and that is from 1966 to 1969, the question in the society was, Freud-Murder, what's the problem? Today, we are beginning to fathom the reality of a non-sustainable society and, consequently, the question is, but what can we do? And that's where we are today. This is progress, though not enough, certainly. We realize that it takes about 30 years for a society to respond to major environmental and resource issues. Everybody should be familiar with Jared Diamond's book, uh, Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or to Succeed. A very insightful book. Uh, uh, Diamond is a uh, professor emeritus at Harvard University. The title of my address here, Regenerative Design for Sustainable Agriculture, Uh, is that during the years of 1985 to 89, I was member of a faculty team of sociologists and architects at the California State Polytechnic University in Pomona. Our task was to to, to, to design and build what is now called the John Lyle Center for Regenerative Studies. It's now a multi-million dollar facility located located on the edge of that campus. The chairperson of the group, uh, Professor John Lyle, who is now deceased, was both a landscape and building architect. His understanding of his profession of architecture was that an architect's responsibility is to design human relationships with the land or with earth, with creation that are regenerative This is to say we must regenerate or replace resources needed to support human life. Lyle suggested with a question, is it possible to live within the limits of regenerative resources? He asked, how can we engineer or invent or research and develop sustainable regenerative support systems Regenerativeness must function within the Earth's capacity to absorb waste and recycle it. The foci of the John Lyle Center involves energy, agriculture, building designs, and waste management. The operating principle is that we can actualize the normative challenge of sustainability only upon regenerative designs and spiritual discipline to live within the boundaries of these designs and their technologies, structures, and systems. The implications are awesome as we analyze contemporary lifestyles, social and personal value systems. Are we willing to lessen our footprint of resource use and waste? Uh, Pope Benedict spoke of this need last week while addressing a youth conference in Australia. I am a trustee of our local Methodist church and right now we are responding to the city of Claremont request for water conservation in Southern California to remove 33% of lawn space at our homes or any place else at church we have a large lawn and the trustees meeting with youth and others uh, proposed a plan to reduce a large patch of lawn but the youth said no way that's where we play frisbee and we're not going to give that up so we have a long way to go when you uh, begin at that point well the uh, quest then for a sustainable agriculture major components of any society are food water and air we now observe that all three of these essentials are threatened last month i was up in the las vegas area looking at lake mead which is very low the snow belt through the last few years in Colorado as one of our sisters understands is low and I just learned that uh, sewage treated water from Las Vegas goes back into the Colorado River and it's sent downstream to Southern California. I think that water is fairly safe but that's where we are now uh, with expansion in some places and less in others. Worldwide melting glaciers threaten normal flows of irrigation water in some of the major rivers of the world, that is the runoff from the Himalayas. Last night we saw some astounding photographs and how many people are dependent on irrigation water from the Indus and the Yellow and the Yangtze and others. Many are mobilizing to address the problem of atmospheric CO2 and methane emissions. Last night, that photograph that we saw of the bubbling of methane out in a bay someplace was astounding. In terms of our global food system, we have experienced in an alarming way the rapid rise of food and fuel costs Food riots now are all over. Those displaced from rural areas and have migrated to the urban centers. Many are unable to buy food now. The food is there, but it's not reachable. I was at the Safeway Market up here. Uh, my wife and I came up for a week before this conference to uh, visit the Oregon coast, and we stayed at um, Cannon Beach. I uh, went to the Safeway store and paid one dollar for, one dollar and twenty five cents for one orange. It's hit. Thus I turn to the illustrations of how many workers in agriculture are responding to the challenge. To achieve adequate and sustainable food production in the 21st century will require radical departure from the approach of the Green Revolution. Green Revolution based on fertilizer, pesticide inputs uh, and the uh, genetic development of high-yielding varieties of rice, wheat, and corn, and monocultures on good land. In contrast to the comparatively simple approach to the first Green Revolution, the strategies of what is often referred to as a second Green Revolution are going to be very complex. These strategies will focus on the development of sustainable and therefore socially just food systems within very diverse environments. This was stressed today in the afternoon session on sustainable agriculture. These strategies must create a productive agriculture upon poor natural resources among people who are on the margins of society. The rural, unemployed, and landless must be brought into the global food system, not sent to the cities without employment or income or food. The experiences and wisdom of indigenous people must be incorporated into the design of sustainable and domestic self-reliant food systems. Again, this point was repeatedly stressed in our afternoon session to move away from the arrogance of our capital and chemical intensive agricultural industries of Europe and America and Canada and once again consult the wisdom of indigenous people. After decades of undermining rural communities, we must do what we can to nurture them This is a worldwide challenge even in the United States. We're working on this issue in Western China right now. I'm grateful to Gordon Conway and his book, The Double Green Revolution. To accomplish this complex goal of a second green revolution, the strategies for both the industrial and the food deficit nations will involve the recruitment of people across the wide span of disciplines that will include not only plant breeders and agronomists, but also those representing the social sciences. A profound interdisciplinary analysis of agro-ecosystems is required. We haven't done that before. Along with the development of massive biodiversity in crop and livestock production, ecologically appropriate for crop lands, rangelands, and forests. The emphasis of the next Green Revolution should be on the rehabilitation of stressed ecosystems within which an agroecology can evolve. This strategy includes but moves beyond the dominance of the biological sciences. If this vision of a global food security, which is sustainable and therefore regenerative, is the underlying commitment to the evolution of a sustainable regenerative domestic food system, then the first priority in research and development will be reaching the marginalized sector of national populations. Obviously, the next Green Revolution, designed to be regionally specific and focused on marginalized landscapes and people, must address issues that were not considered during the first Green Revolution. The needs are many. Self-reliant, biologically (sighs) dynamic soil nutritional management beyond petroleum products. Water management, including surface and underground resources, mangrove, and coral reef protection, reducing pollution from farm runoff regional genetic resource preservation, alternatives to slash and burn agriculture, the development and maintenance of mountain agriculture, changes in land tenure traditions, innovative market accessibility, careful farming designs for the integration of crop and livestock and bring an end to the livestock uh, factories that we've created in our recent years and strategies for the maintenance of wildlife habitat, which are essential for uh, biodiversity and sustainability. We also need national and international policies that give priority to developing essential rural infrastructures, including public health and educational services as well as roads, railroads, bridges, storage processing facilities uh, for agricultural products. The agenda is long. The needed second Green Revolution, if it is to approximate the goal of adequate food supplies, must focus on uh, food production with justice, be economically benign, and economically viable. These three aspects were were underscored several times this afternoon the challenge is to understand production efficiencies in ways that measure all of the production of social environmental costs right now agricultural economics does not measure externalities and this was stressed this afternoon by Who's the guy that's blonde-headed with a croup cut? There he is. You did a beautiful job of stressing that point. We must measure all of the production costs, social and environmental, when uh, doing an analysis on the economics of contemporary agriculture. We must move beyond the present paralysis in production research, our dependency on fossil fuels, and the mindset that some must produce more to produce others. And I should also add, we have to move beyond our paralysis of transgenetic bioengineering in our food systems. We are creating life forms that have never existed upon the planet. And woe be to anybody who introduces an organism in an ecosystem that has no history of that organism and woe to anybody creating life forms without an exit strategy if things go wrong. That's where we are right now. We must give priority to the ability of people to feed themselves sustainably rather than production of crops for world market. And I must mention that this has not been a part of the present policies of the World Bank and prevailing international trade policies. Well, these are radical ideas. I suppose uh, I can be accused of being an angry person now after seeing this irrationality prevail for so long, but yet has captured our imagination as normative. But, these radical ideas are essential components for the 21st century challenge that is to create for the first time in history an agriculture that does not destroy the integrities of natural ecosystems. This afternoon, uh, we, in the seminar on sustainable agriculture, uh, W.C. Laudermilk's book, booklet under the Roosevelt administration, Entitled "A Seven Thousand Years Destruction of the Land," was uh, repeatedly quoted. We have to create a system that is not dependent on fossil fuel derivatives. The vision and work of the Land Institute at Salina, Kansas. How many of you are familiar with West Jackson? Uh, I think. Uh, West and Dana Jackson and the formation of the, the Land Institute in Salina is one of the finest illustrations of a post-modern, post-petroleum food system, moving toward an agriculture based on what they call herbaceous perennial polycultures. They're researching over a 50-year period. West is one of the. Um, MacArthur Prairie Genius Award in his research geared up research for 50 years so that at a point in time we can make bread and cake from the harvesting of improved seeds of our prairie grasses and never again use a moldboard plow to uh, disrupt those ecosystems. This is where we're moving into perennialism to address the issue of soil loss. The Heart of Science, the American Scientific Affiliation, ponders the issue of doing science domestically and abroad in service to God, God's world, and our human brothers and sisters. During this conference, we have been reflecting well on Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh mortal, what is good. Our 21st century challenge, and we must make significant progress before the end of this century, I think last night that point was made clear, is to, is profoundly engaged in the pursuit of justice. We note the concept of sustainability is transgenerational in scope, with a profound spirit of humbleness, we recognize that we are engulfed in a non-sustainable world of science and technology, agriculture and industry. We have not accepted the responsibilities of having dominion, Genesis 1, Dominion has been misunderstood as freedom to dominate and to exploit. To the contrary, the ancient Hebrew thought Dominion meant accepting responsibility for the maintenance of justice and righteousness within the sphere of one's domain. And righteousness is understood as maintaining right order among people and their relations with the land. And if a ruler fails in this dominion rule, the ruler forfeits his or her right to rule. In Leviticus 25:18 we read we read observe these ordinances and live securely. Otherwise in Leviticus 20:22 20, the land will vomit you out. I've spent enough time on the Sahelian zones of West and East Africa to see the reality of this. We read in Psalms 104:24 how wondrous are the works of your creation, and wisdom you have made them all. And a prior verse in 104.5 says, let these foundations never be shaken. What ought to be the heart of scientific effort? Research and developing a resource regenerative and therefore sustainable society is our, res- is our response in the beginning of this century. In other words, doing justice, which the Lord requires. We We are called to walk humbly with God and all living creatures of God's world. The problem that we face is that our modern world, having isolated itself from the living planet, has left us with a culture of arrogance and self-assurance. We are totally anthropocentric in our lifestyle and our underlying value orientations. We are being called by the challenge we face to a thoroughgoing ecocentrism. As I reflected on the invitation to address the ASA here at Newburgh, I now dare to share my thoughts about your responsibilities as scientists. I've articulated four and they're in four simple paragraphs. First, ponder your commitment to pursue your commitment of serving God, God's world and our brothers and sisters with a clear headed perspective Uh, of our unprecedented crisis that has engulfed us and how it has happened in the first place. Let us move beyond our innocence and sharpen our research agendas to be relevant to the changes that we have to make. Secondly, good scientists are good visionaries. Get busy and dream new dreams that will embrace the idea of doing justice as we are beginning to understand that concept as it is expressed with the idea of sustainable global society. And thirdly, evaluate the relevance of your scientific pursuits to assure that they are relevant to the challenges that embrace us today. If you are a teacher or a professor, Enable your students to prepare for positions that do not yet exist, but which will be needed in the future. I was visiting my son, David. He did his Ph.D. under the Fulbright Scholarship Program at the University of New South Wales in Australia, up in, uh, uh, not Victoria, the next one up uh I was in his laboratory he's a rangeland biologist and he was working on the nutritional aspects of kangaroo and he had on his desk a pile of at least 18 inches high of computer readouts on uh urinalysis and nitrogen levels in that urine of kangaroo I said David what in the world are you doing this for? And he said, Dad, I'm preparing myself for a job that doesn't yet exist. And three years later, when he was doing his postdoctoral work on deer ranching in New Zealand, the Australian government asked him to come back to Australia and to work in the field land the field of uh, rangeland restoration and now That's moved into the whole area of carbon sequestering. If you are a teacher, enable your students to prepare for positions that do not yet exist. Fourth, ask tough questions. I remember, and I'm almost through here, I remember an ancient Chinese proverb a good question is an answer in the embryonic form I leave you with this challenge in Christ the one who makes all things new we are free from fear to raise questions that others dare to ask and to propose answers that the powers and the principalities of our time would consider absurd I remember back in the early 1980s asking a question in a California agricultural leadership seminar underwritten by the Bank of America and a large California agribusiness corporation. I asked, when ought we begin research for the development of a post-petroleum agriculture that will probably be solar and biologically dependent? I thought I was going to be thrown out of the room. But in Christ, I was not afraid. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, Dean, for bringing your uh, decades of uh, experience to bear and giving us that presentation, which was uh, by turns uh, sobering, uh, convicting, and hopeful. Um, would you be willing to entertain a number of questions? Sure. So um, I think those two microphones are, are live. Uh, so if you would like to make your way to those microphones, or if you can't make your way there, I'll pass the portable microphone over to you. And uh, remember, don't ask questions, but just ask your embryonic answers. <laughs> uh, then uh, Dr. Feudenberg will, will entertain them uh, for, for some time. So uh, go ahead.
1: I, I'm wondering what you think the impact of uh, farm subsidies in the United States and Europe has had on the uh, development of agriculture, the decimation of it in developing parts of the world. Yeah. I know that's often claimed, and I'm, I'm assuming there's some validity sure, to it. that uh, issue is the heart of the collapse yeah. of the recent uh, – Uh, debates uh, that took place uh, just two weeks ago. Yeah, I think it kind of collapsed uh, last week. The subsidy question, uh, the intent was proper to keep our our farm families from going under Mm -hmm. uh, in a time and a period when uh, prices never got close to the cost of production. Uh, but now that that's all involved in, in the complexity which I don't understand of international commodity trade and the uh, supplying of what used to be uh, uh, excess production has just uh, undermined the efforts of uh, the development of national self-reliant food systems. Yeah. Um, well, and today I think about 80% of it goes to agro-business. It's not the local yeah, family and we're farm We're not anymore. subsidizing it's, farm It's really subsidies then. for agro-business yeah. who's yeah. already making record crops. That correct,
2: depends. correct. I'm a city boy but and an engineer but my wife has a small farm in eastern Washington that she inherited from her great great forebears and we contract with a local Christian family they raise wheat primarily but sometimes barley and sometimes peas and they've tried with our participation other ways to generate revenue from that farm Uh, they're wonderful people and we enjoy spending time with them and every time I go I bring ideas from ASA and Land Institute and bounce them off of this great uh, small family farmer and each time he said I can't afford the economic risk to do that until the price of wheat went up last year he was a quarter million dollars in debt by virtue of accumulated debt over the years of cost of farming And he said, you bring these great ideas to me, and I love them, but I can't do them because I have local places to sell my food, and I have only limited outlets, and I can't afford the risk of trying something new all by myself. So there's a great opportunity cost here. How do you get there from here, especially for a small family farmer?
1: Agriculture is a a basic social national, international activity Um, and a family farmer cannot stand on its own feet without the proper, uh, without justice in the national infrastructure that makes agriculture possible in the first place. And so these issues that we are facing in the creation of a regenerative and therefore sustainable and just food system in terms of transgenerational justice is a massive social responsibility of priority level and we have a terribly long way to go in the development of public policy that enables uh, our agriculture to survive. And so it's all of our responsibility to, particularly as scientists who can see through a lot of this stuff, to uh, support and initiate uh, public policy that will begin to provide the transformation uh, of our agriculture up to a level where it can be regenerative and part of the technology of this is going to be perennialism. Uh, hopefully, parenthetically, uh, your family might have a little bit of light in the tunnel given the fact that, uh, for tragic reasons, uh, a bushel of wheat is worth a lot more than it was the last couple of years. But. Um, in every country of the world and i've been watching we everything we did in the congo was destroyed by the marauding armies where we had a lot of friends and colleagues in zimbabwe and that's all gone now uh illustrations of what happens if you don't have a nationwide support structure uh, infrastructure for uh, enabling the local farmer, those masses of people ignored and neglected in the rural sectors to uh, survive with health and dignity. But you raised the question of the need everywhere for uh, national policy that has as a first priority as it would have with national security. The security of the agricultural uh, community, but not necessarily the agribusiness world. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Dr. Freudenberger. How can we make the transition to resource regeneration both expeditious and liberating?
1: that's why I pray for God's blessing upon you, a unique gathering of scientists to help design and invent and enable us to work within the limits of regeneration. And I think on the interface of science and faith, the responsibility of our churches is to begin to talk about personal values and disciplines which will help us live within the parameters of regeneration. Uh, We've got to get beyond the greed that has captured our culture in this moment of our history. Uh, But if we're gonna get to the regeneration of resources through wind and for, through the various uh, energy systems we have. And so far in this conference, we have not talked much about conservation. It's We've been talking about how to meet our needs for energy today without talking about how can we reduce our needs. Uh, that's, I think, the challenge of ASA from here on out is to help us uh, Design and, uh, invent and develop, uh, regenerativeness in all that we do. Uh, and that really, you make me underscore what I was trying to say in my address is that this is the challenge for the churches and it's a challenge for the scientific community who are committed to uh, caring for God's creation as the next adventure in Christian discipleship. And I don't have an answer for that issue of what a regenerative modern society of six and a half billion people going on to nine billion. What's that gonna look like? But that is the urgent agenda facing the science community, and for those of a religious orientation who are questioning the consequences of their present lifestyle and value system. Parenthetically, just for the bragging of it, my wife and I live in a retirement community at Pilgrim Place in Claremont, California. We live in an 1,100-square-foot house, and with the improvements I've done on windows, wind turbines, uh shade trees, this uh perennial uh trees, uh evergreens. Uh our electric bill last month was two dollars and eighty five cents. It's it's that's a beginning point. That's all I can say except it's up to you folks to help figure this thing out and that is the priority, it seems to me, of our science community at this time.
0: Yes people are willing, we can perhaps have, two mo- have these two questions yet, if they're brief. I uh, don't sense much restlessness, but seems to be some desire to continue listening to Dr. Freudberger's uh, comments. So we'll just take these last two questions yet, then.
1: I have two very brief questions. And Give me you, one at a time, because I'll forget just, the other one. What you just uh, stated leads up beautifully to this. The first is, does the ASA embody the expertise to create educational materials that can be used in our churches. So they
3: become aware of these problems. We've got to the do second that. question is, what's holding us back?
1: I can't answer. I could, that, uh, <laughs> what's holding us back? Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic, as I said in my statement, people are now asking the question, but what can we do? That's the seminal question. Uh, And that's based upon 30 years of educational inputs. I remember at the School of Theology and then at uh, Luther Seminary, I was using Lester Brown's State of the World uh, annual uh, report and also later on uh, Al Gore's Earth in the Balance and the academic deans of both institutions say, Fred what does this have to do with theological education? And I said, everything, let me explain. Uh, so that's where we were, but now we have such a beautiful illustration there with uh, Mary Evelyn Tucker and Byron Schwinn at Yale University, Yale Divinity School, coupled with the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale uh... we're moving along the path rapidly it's uh... many of the seminaries across the u.s. now have environmental studies programs built into their curriculum and they're hunting around for faculty they don't have enough we don't have enough folks yet ready to work on the interface of theology and ecology uh... but uh... I think we're moving rapidly now. It's taken 30 years to get this far. I hope it's not too little too late. In the past years, uh, I've been doing on Sunday mornings, adult study forums when I was in Minnesota and Los Angeles, uh, called, and things like that. pardon, go ahead.
0: Could we create DVDs and that sort of thing? Uh, sure.
1: Uh, the Presbyterian Church has done quite a bit of that in the past, but not enough. And golly, let's get busy. And uh, there's no substitute f- for this kind of education. And I should add that in our society, the insight of our scientists are, is pretty well respected. And so uh, I think you all, as scientists, and educators have a responsibility to produce educational materials to help us see where we are, how we got there, and where we're going within the context of our Judeo-Christian understanding of God's will for humanity and God's will for God's creation.
3: There's a natural, natural human tendency to say, I've got a problem, So we've got a problem, so you've got to fix it. And uh, in general, uh, when I hear a lot of we statements about what we have to do, it takes away away the individual responsibility, often assigns the problem to a national problem that has to be solved by politicians. Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. So I'm uh, hoping that maybe people, instead of uh, doing the Jeremiah thing, do the follow me thing. This is the way I live. Wouldn't you like Mm -hmm. to live this way? Mm -hmm. I have a low electric bill because I do these things. You can too. Let me help you do so. And I'm hoping that many of the solutions we come up with are like Mm -hmm. you did, cutting down, using less, figuring out ways to do what we do here without flying all around the world perhaps in a few years. Uh, what would you say about turning it from a we ought to do to I am doing, wouldn't you like to do this?
1: Uh, get, get to the library and get a copy of Seth, S-P-E-T-H, Beth. He's the dean of the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at, uh, Har- at uh, Yale. And he wrote a book, a paperback now, called Red Sky in the Morning. Um, he hits this, your question straight on and said uh, through the years he's observed and he documents the whole thing, uh, change comes from the bottom up. It doesn't bubble down from the top. Don't count on leadership, political leadership or religious leadership. Don't count on them to take the initiative. but." Create a groundswell within the society that demands these changes, and throws the rascals out that need to be thrown out, and and we move on as the a society. But for me, uh, I do what I can in educational publications, in teaching. I'm getting kind of tired mm-hmm. these days, uh, for the strange reason and can't keep up the pace that I used to, but uh, I've cut down my electrical use to $2.85 a month, and I make 12 tons of compost a year for our community gardens. Uh, and by taking our own personal initiatives, and I turn off the water when I'm brushing my teeth and all of this stuff, these are spiritual exercises now. Uh, We uh, recharge our batteries and uh, do what we can within our networks of influence. Uh, And certainly uh, here today dealing with the American uh, Scientific Affiliation Group, which is a very impressive uh, body of, of scholars. Workers, uh, church leaders, uh, we need to take some of this stuff on in priority fashion if we can. Uh, I wanted to finish my little presentation by saying, uh, thank you and may God bless you in your endeavors. Thank you.
0: With that, thank you very much, T.